You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here on a holiday weekend and all of that. And listen, we are, we're thrilled that you're, that you're here with us. And uh, I, I grew up in Boston. Many of you know that. I talk about that fairly regularly. And our family moved around in the Boston area quite a bit. And so in second grade, fourth grade, and then sixth grade, I was in all new schools. And what's, which, once again, isn't super weird. What was weird is that in second grade, fourth grade, and sixth grade, my teacher was named Mrs. Roach in each of those three different cities, three different grades, and three different schools. And that, it always bugged me, but you know, it's just, sorry, I know, I know. I couldn't help myself, I couldn't help myself. Um, so, but my, so I wanna tell you about my sixth grade Mrs. Roach, as opposed to fourth and second grade. So, so sixth grade Mrs. Roach uh, had us on the first day of school bring all of our math books to the front of the class. And she pulled out what was the biggest stapler I had ever seen, and she proceeded to staple the last 50 pages of our book, of our math books, shut. And we were all afraid to ask because I went to Catholic school for uh, at least from uh, fifth through eighth. And uh, you know, you know, if you went to Catholic school, you know that snitches get stitches. You know that, right? And uh, and and kids who ask questions get stapled. Uh, so. And I did not want to mess with a teacher with a giant stapler and start asking questions. So someone in the class finally musters up the courage, says, Mrs. Roach, why, why are, uh, are you stapling all of our books? And she says, because the answers are all in the back of the book, which that is an incredible thought. And um, every answer I needed to solve all of my math problems, I was carrying around with me. And she was right, and I thank God for staple removers because that's how I passed the sixth grade. And uh, now, what, I, what I've come to learn about Mrs. Roach's math book is what I've come to learn about life, is that the answers are in the back of the book. It's what I've come to learn about the Bible, that the answers are in the back of the book. And not just the answers to my personal issues or problems or difficulties, but the answers to life's greatest questions are found in the back of the book as well. You see, sometimes it seems like the world is falling apart. It's getting worse day by day. But I want you to recognize something, right? And this is the spoiler alert, that Jesus is coming back, that Jesus wins. I don't know if you knew that. Like, end of the story, game over, he wins. And, 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 and that's an important thing for us. And that's our hope as Christians, that Jesus is coming back, and he's going to take everything that's wrong and make it right in this world. And so uh, we started a series a couple of weeks ago called The Beginner's Guide to the End of the World. And we've been talking about Bible prophecy. And I am absolutely convinced that Bible prophecy is not something that we should be confused about, lacking in knowledge about, because it's part of what fuels our faith as Christians. Because one quarter of the Bible is prophecy, that no other religion or belief system on our planet uh, has 
makes predictive prophecy like we see in the Bible. That the, and we've been saying this each week in our series, that the biblical prophets were specific, predicting events that no one could see. And if they were predicting events that no one could see, that means that those prophecies had the ability to be proven false. They weren't, but they had the ability to. So in the first message, if you were with us, we talked about how Israel is the key to Bible prophecy about how Israel existed as a nation, then it ceased to exist as a nation for almost 1,900 years, and then came back into existence on May 14th of 1948. And the Bible speaks of Israel as a nation prophetically. And so Israel's reemergence as a nation, which has never happened, uh, is a powerful fulfillment of Bible prophecy. The second message, we talked about God's timetable for human history that there are 70 weeks or 77-year periods uh, for, that, that outline God's prophetic plan. As 69 of those seven-year periods have been fulfilled, that were for, starting from the, uh, the going forth to restore Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah and his death. It was fulfilled to the day. And that leaves us then with one seven-year period to go that is yet future. And once again, as we talked about it, that these 77s, these 77-year periods primarily deal with Israel. And so we find ourselves kind of like a stopwatch. The first 69 seven-year periods and the clock stops. And we find ourselves almost in like this historical parentheses where the first 69 weeks were fulfilled at the death and resurrection of the Messiah. The clock stops. And then the church takes center stage as the vehicle that God uses to reach the world. But that isn't always going to be the case. There will come a point in time when God actually removes the church from the scene that's happening on planet Earth and his focus then returns to his people, Israel. And that's when the promise gets fulfilled, that when the Apostle Paul says that all Israel will be saved. And so what I want to spend some time talking about in, in this message is what happens to the church. What is the church's role in, in Bible prophecy? And what happens in that moment when God removes his church and takes his church off the scene to heaven? It's, it's theologically, it's something that's called the rapture of the church. And it's a conversation that the Apostle Paul gets into with a church that he planted in the city of Thessalonica. Now, uh, and if you can kind of in your mind, it's kind of an Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. And Paul goes to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. And so he took three for sure, and then uh, church history records a fourth. But the problem is Paul was only able to spend about three weeks in Thessalonica before he had to leave. And so after leaving, he's like, man, there's so much I didn't tell them. So what he does is he writes them two very theologically dense letters called 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians that not only grounded them in the faith, but helped them answer the questions that they themselves had. And one of the questions that they had was about believers in Jesus who had died. They're like, well, what happens to them? I mean, do these people miss out on the second coming because they weren't alive when, when it was going to happen? Now, one of the things that we have to realize is that most of these people, uh, especially in Thessalonica, they were not converting to Christianity from Judaism per se. They were converting uh, from paganism. And so a lot of the, the, polyth the 
polytheistic faiths of the ancient world did not believe in an afterlife. And so in the face of death, these polytheistic uh, systems, they had nothing but despair to offer. And, and in fact, you can research this. There's a whole bunch of quotes, and it's just so grim how the philo- these, these you know, Greek philosophers uh, dealt with this. But it was nothing. Their, their culture offered nothing but hopelessness and literally dread. And so what Paul does is that he gives these believers hope, perspective, and understanding not only about what happens after or beyond the grave, but how we are part, as the church, we are part of Jesus' plan. So we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, if you, or 1 Thessalonians 4, pardon me, if you have a Bible. If not, you got your notes. If not, you've got the screen. Uh, if, and so as long as you don't have your eyes closed, you can see a Bible somewhere. So Anyway, so we're going to start in verse 13. Here's what we read, 1 Thessalonians 4. He says, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing I want you to know in our time together. And by the way, we're going to start, this is all going to kind of crescendo. So this is maybe like the 101 level. We're going to get to like graduate level on this topic by the end of the message. And I'll cue you in on that because it's going to get fairly deep here quickly. But the first thing for us to note is this, that the rapture gives me hope and expectation. Hope and expectation. Paul opens the conversation by explaining that Christians don't have to sorrow like the unbelieving world. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians shouldn't grieve loss. Some, and and once again, you see this in Christian circles, unfortunately, that, oh, you shouldn't be sad when someone dies, but, you know, that's a lack of faith. No, it's not. Honestly, that's nonsense. Um, When someone that you love dies, sorrow is the correct emotion. Grief is the correct emotion. What Paul is saying is that we don't have to have a hopeless type of grief. Why? Because Jesus died and rose again. And those believers who have died, we will see again when we either step into eternity ourselves or the rapture takes place. That's why the early Christians likened death to sleep. Because you know what happens when you go to sleep? You wake up again. And for Christians, there was always hope beyond the grave. Unless you're a teenager, you can sleep for like 15 hours straight. But most people go to sleep and then wake up again. That is a skill I no longer possess. I don't know if you've known this. This is like a sign of middle age. But like the longer you sleep, the more in pain you are. Like how does that work, right? Um, that happens to me on Friday is that I, Friday's my day off. And so, but of course, because my day off, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and I couldn't go back to sleep. So at 3 p.m., I took a nap. And then I woke up an hour later and couldn't move my neck at all. I mean, I was like a robot, right? Um, and, and so my kids were asking me, uh, I, I'm like, man, my neck hurts. They're like, oh, dad, were you working out? And I'm like, don't even troll me. Uh, I hurt myself sleeping, which, by the way, is like, uh, it's so weird. And I had this happen. We were driving to lunch yesterday, and my wife said something that was so funny. I started laughing, and I pulled a muscle laughing. And I don't know, I, like, uh, you know, so people are like, oh, you know, that, that, that's like, oh, he died. I died laughing. I didn't die laughing. I got debilitated laughing, which is kind of the same thing. And it, but it was sad. And I don't know if there really is anything more middle-aged than that, like hurting yourself laughing, hurting yourself sleeping. Like, you know, that, that, these are middle-aged. I think the only thing more middle-aged to say is I have heartburn. 
right? I think that's the only, that, you know. Anyway, so my point is this. Is that like death is not the end for Christians. And it's an important thing to note that while our body might sleep, our soul does not. Now, this is huge. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That God is a trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you are created in God's image as a lesser trinity. That doesn't mean that you are God, by the way. And if you don't believe me, ask your spouse. They've got uh, the inside info on that. Um, But you and I are created as a lesser trinity of body, soul, and spirit. Your body is what everyone sees. Your soul is your personality. That's made up of your your background, your experiences, uh, your, your intellect. And your, your spirit is the innermost person. It's the part of you that connects with God. And when your body dies, it's not that your soul or spirit dies. Your body dies. But like a seed that gets put into the ground, and then the tree that comes from it is from that seed. So when your, your, your physical body dies, there's a new body that God, at the end of the age, God is going to give you a new body that is built for eternity that you'll receive at Jesus' return. Uh, But, and I put 1 Corinthians 15 in there so you could read it. I have so much to cover, I'm not gonna read everything, but it's in there, so if you wanna, you know, it's there for you. And um, and what Paul says is that the resurrection is just like that. A seed goes into the ground, it dies, produces fruit, and then, which by the way, I probably could have read it as fast as I just explained it to you. So, but anyway, but your, your body is the part that appears to sleep, but your spirit is alive and well. And so when you take your last breath on planet earth, you'll be taking your next breath in the presence of God in heaven if you're a person who follows Jesus. And in 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul says it this way. He says, that's not what he says. There we go. Well, he says the other thing in 1 Corinthians, but he says, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight, We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so this should give us comfort and hope because the people that we have said goodbye to aren't sleeping. Um, They certainly aren't gone. Their spirit has entered into God's presence and is awaiting the moment of Jesus' return when we are all together with him. Now, Verse 15, Paul goes on. So that's just kind of the opening volley. And then he says this. He says, For this we say by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second thing I want you to note, and that is that the rapture gives me understanding of God's plan. Now, listen, when I don't understand what God is doing, everything seems out of control. Everything kind of stinks. Everything gets worse. And and, um, now, but when I know what God is doing, there is a peace and a clarity that comes from that. Um, now, one of my, I'll give you an example. One of my, when one of my kids was really young, about a year old, I, I won't say which one, um, but see, my kids are at an age, and I, this is kind of, the, I'll tell you a weird glimpse into a pastor's home, is that I tell stories about my kids, which when they were really, really young, they, they, there was no choice. 
right? They didn't know, but now they sit in the services uh, here, and they're like, yeah, I didn't like when you told that story, and, and, uh, and I'm like, well, they're like, you know, could you run it by me before? And I'm like, all right. So then I'll tell them, like, hey, could I tell the story? Like, I don't know how I feel about that. And then I'm like, well, how about I give you a couple of bucks? If, uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, feel free. And so anyway, so we've had this whole thing worked out where they get paid per service. I don't even know how. They unionized. All three of them unionized about this. And so anyway, so they get paid three bucks a story. And the reason why it's three bucks is because there's three of them. And if it's a story about all three of them, they each get a dollar. And so there's usually not stories. It's usually a story about one of them or three of them. But I haven't run this by them, so I, I'm not, if I don't mention their name, then this story is royalty-free, is what I'm saying to you. That's why I'm not telling you who it is, because we didn't have time for that. So anyway, so my wife is out, and this just happens a while back. Um, my wife is out, and I have one of the children. Which one? Who knows? I have one of the children, and we watch a Red Sox game together on TV, and then I, I started smelling something weird, and uh, this, this child had, uh, and this child was still in diapers, of course, but they had just dropped a bomb, uh, like, of nuclear variety. And so I took this child to the changing table and realized that uh, what would have happened here was now leaking through the diaper, down their leg, through the shorts, and um, it, it was now, uh, it, was, it was really, it was, it, was, it was rough. It was a nasty business. So I take the diaper off. I put this child, um, now, they, by, oh, by the way, as I'm, I take the diaper off because I'm going to put this child in the bath. And um, the child at this point has taken the contents of their diaper and is rubbing it on my forearms. <laughs> and I'm like... Lord Jesus, this is your moment. Like, now is the time to come back because this is horrible. Anyway, so this, I start, I, and I'm like, I start hyperventilating, you know, like, now, you remember the Calgon commercials? Like, I, I understood that commercial now. Like, in that moment, like, now I know why this, like, these women, you know, are all like, Calgon, take me away because I'm, I'm ready to go too. So, anyway, and, and so I don't, and I, I, I don't even know what to say. I just keep telling, I'm just saying, like, it's not happening. This isn't happening. This isn't happening. So, anyway, I put this child into the tub and give them a bath and, and then wash my arms. And after that, uh, we had to go to Publix. And so we get in the car, and I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the house, and I'm like, I can still smell it. And, uh, and I know this, this child is clean as a whistle, and so uh, with brand new clothes and all that, so we get in the car, I still smell it. Um, I, I, I get out of the car, and I put this child in the, the cart, you know, the seat part of, the, 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 of the, the shopping cart as we're going, and I'm still smelling it, even outside in the parking lot. And I'm like, what is going on? And then I, I, I'm looking around. I look down at my shirt, and I have poop all over my shirt. And it's like, you see, like, these little handprints. And um, that's when I started screaming, just like, I need help. And uh, and, and so now, and, and once again, and like, I didn't even realize it. And so sometimes, you know, people are like, life stinks. I was like, maybe life, maybe, maybe life doesn't stink. Maybe it's you. So anyway, uh, but here's the point, right? Is that we have to understand, we have to understand what God is doing in the world. If we don't, we're just going to think everything is totally out of control. But see, because God works with the church differently, um, than, uh, than in the world. Now, the best way to understand the rapture is to understand how Jewish weddings took place in Israel because God's plan of redemption is modeled after the Jewish wedding. 
So uh, when a man wanted to marry a woman, the father of the bride would set the price. It was called, uh, and he would set a, a negotiated price based on his love for her, and so usually the price was high. Now, this was called the dowry. I know that's kind of weird for us culturally, but the dowry was money that the dad would hold on to and just save for her just in case the guy turned out to be a loser, and then she had to come back home, and this was, she would be able to live a good life based on uh, the dowry. So if you can kind of imagine it like alimony in advance, that's basically what we're talking about. And so then, so the man would say, okay, that's the price, and he would go and pay the price. And then he would go back to his father's house, and he would start preparing their home. Now, the way that it works, uh, that worked in that culture is you didn't just like build your own house, but there was, uh, remember, all land was given by allotment, by tribe, and then by family. So you would basically, there would be a house, and then you would build an addition uh, onto the house so that then now, you know, extended f- members of the family would live. If you're from Hialeah, you totally understand what I'm talking about. Um, so anyway, so what would happen is, is that now he would go back to the father's house and uh, he would begin to prepare their home. And the father would set the date for when the man could go get his bride. And typically what would happen, uh, if you read these, these Jewish stories, is that typically in the middle of the night, because once again, if, if you tell a young man that it's like the only thing stopping you from being, having your wedding ceremony and your honeymoon is building a house, you can imagine that kid is going to be working day and night, 24 hours a day to get this thing done. And so he just keeps working. And so in the middle of the night, they would find uh, the, like these young men just like asleep on the ground with like a hammer in their hand. And then the dad would, would wake him up and say, hey, it's time, go get your bride. And so it was usually the middle of the night, he would enter the town, and then he would blow a trumpet, signaling that he had returned for his bride. And then he would come, he would whisk his bride away, they would go back to their new home for a seven-day honeymoon, and afterwards present themselves to the community and have what is called the marriage feast. Now, this is exactly what Jesus told us was going to happen. Jesus pays the price for us, pays the price, dies for all of our sins, past, present, and future, and then goes back to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. I put it in your notes in John 14. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see, so then, The father sets the time. That's why Jesus, when they asked him about, he says, listen, nobody knows the day or the hour, not even me. Only my father knows that. That was, he was cueing them in to the Jewish wedding. And see, then Jesus is going to return. A trumpet is going to sound and Jesus will come and get his bride, the church. And that's what we, we read just a moment ago in 1 Thessalonians where he said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. This is the rapture of the church where Jesus takes his church to heaven for a, not a seven-day, but a seven-year 
honeymoon. And that's why we're caught up. We're taken from heaven to earth. And while we are with him, there's all kinds of wild things happening on earth that the book of Revelation calls the great tribulation. Now, why? Because God, at this point in history, is going to pour out his wrath, finally, on a sinful, unbelieving world. And you know how people say, like, why doesn't God do something about all the evil in the world? Well, this is the moment. But there's also another issue that's taking place, and that is that God loves Israel. They were his people, are his people, and are always going to be his people. And during the tribulation time, what's going to happen, and we see this if you read through Revelation, they are going to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and all of these Old Testament prophecies are going to be fulfilled. And once that's done, Jesus returns with his bride, the church, and we will have, if you read Revelation 19, what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so listen, when the world is getting worse and worse, and we're thinking like it stinks, and I don't know why it's getting better. No, no, no. It's, It's not out of control. It's a preview of coming attractions that Jesus' return for his church, the rapture, is nearer than it's ever been. All right, last thing. This is where we get to the graduate level stuff. All right, verse 18, he says, Therefore, in light of all this stuff, comfort one another with these words. Now, I want you to think about that for, for a second, and this is the third point, and that is that the rapture gives me comfort and confidence. It wouldn't comfort me that much to know that it's like, I know things are tough. I know you're going through a difficult season, but don't worry. According to the Bible, there's seven years of hell on earth waiting for you until Jesus comes back. Like, that's not comforting. Uh, It's it's comforting to know that we're going to be pulled out of that and that things are going to get way better for us who are walking with Jesus and trusting in him. Now, besides everything that I've told you, there's a couple other ways, and this is kind of, once again, this is the graduate level stuff, um, that we can know that the church, that God is gonna rapture the church before the tribulation period begins. Two ways that we're gonna look at. The first is this, is that when you look at the church in Revelation, and and that is the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, if you look at it, if we kind of step back and look at it from like a 35,000 foot level, in the book of Revelation, the word church is used 19 times in the first three chapters. In fact, Jesus writes to, uh, he writes seven letters to seven churches in uh, chapters two and three. Um, and the cool thing about these letters, and we don't have time to cover it, but you can track down some old messages that I've done, is that these aren't just seven letters written to seven churches in Asia Minor in, uh, in the first century. No, 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 it's, it's, it's way cooler than that. Uh, they actually, the order that they are in, if you see everything that they're dealing with, they, pick, they are a picture of every era of church history from the time that the church began in the first century until today. And so the order of these churches represent each era of church history since it began. And that, that's really important because of what is written next. So once the seven letters to the seven churches are written in Revelation chapter four, verse one, you'll see it up on the screen. It says, after these things I looked and behold a door standing, a door standing open in heaven. Now, that word after these things, you may want to circle that in your, in your outline if you're a note taker. And here's what you want to write. This is the Greek word, meta tauta, M-E-T-A-T-A-U-T-A, meta tauta. It means after this, these things, after what things? After the things of the church age. We see things, the scene changes from earth to heaven. Seals are open, and once those seals are open, 
the great tribulation begins. And it is a picture of the rapture of the church. We see a picture of the church in heaven in Revelation 4 and 5. And so Jesus removes the church so he can deal with a world that has rejected him. I mentioned that the, the word church is used 19 times. The word church is never mentioned one time from Revelation 6 through 19. It's only mentioned again after Jesus returns uh, at the very end of Revelation. And so we see that pattern, uh, that, that first thing. The second, so the second thing I want you to note is, if the first is the church in Revelation, the second thing is the pattern in Scripture. Um, now, there are three major views of the rapture. Every major denomination in Christianity recognizes that there is a rapture. The problem is they don't place it all in the same spot. And so I want to tell you the three views, and, um, and I think it's going to be a good thing for you to know. The first is what's called the pre-tribulation rapture, and that's what I believe the scriptures teach. And that's where Jesus comes for the church before the events of the tribulation, like we've been talking about. There's also a view that's called the mid-tribulation view, and that is that Jesus comes for the church about halfway through the events of the tribulation, about three and a half years. That's when uh, the, 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 tribulation ta- the, the rapture takes place. And then there is the post-tribulation view that Jesus returns in Revelation 19, and that's when the church is caught up only to then immediately turn around and come back down. If you've ever been on the Tower of Terror, where you go up and then you drop, that's pretty much what they're talking about. It's the same idea. And so I've got several issues with the mid and post-tribulation view, Um, but in our context here, as we're talking about, there's no comfort in Paul saying that the rapture should, should comfort us if all of this happens it's like, you know, once again, if life is tough, man, but, you know, once you get through those last three and a half years of total hell, it's going to be great. Uh, or the last seven years of the judgment of God poured out on planet Earth, that's not comforting. The pattern of Scripture that, we, that I want to talk about as we close is God removing his people before the judgment begins. I'm going to go a little fast here. Um, it, there's a lot of verses, and so I, I just, if, if you say, like, I didn't get it, Watch this message again. It'll be everywhere. You can watch things. Um, In Genesis 19, there's two cities, sister cities called Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot, uh, there's a guy named Lot. He's living in Sodom. God has decided that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So he sends two angels into the city to take Lot and his family out of the city. And there's this argument that takes place. Lot says, okay, I'll leave. And then he's trying to get his, his wife and his daughters and, and, and their husbands to go and all that. But Lot says he wants to go to a city called Zoar, this little city. In fact, that's what the name Zoar means. It means little, uh, to flee from the judgment. Look what it says in, in Genesis 19. You'll see it on the screen. He says, hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city is called Zoar, and the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And it, it, once again, it's removing God's people before the judgment begins. And God was separating those who would be judged. In fact, uh, Peter, who was Jesus' most famous disciple, talks about this event, and he says this in 2 Peter 2. He says, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes and condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. 
and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day, seeing and hearing their lawless deed. Then the Lord, now this is the key, knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Now, if you need something to cap it off, like that sounds interesting, well, so let me give you the last one, and that is what Jesus said when he talked about, well, what's it going to be like at his at his coming, he said like this. He said, likewise, it was, also, it, it was also, let me say that again. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought and sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, out of Sodom it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, will be, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay. One more, because you're like, well, that's one, but give me, give me another one. All right, let's talk about the flood. The flood was God's judgment on the earth, but there were two groups of people who were saved. Now, most of us know, if you've read the story, you know about Noah and his family, and if you have kids, you've probably read the story, which is kind of a weird story to read kids, but, um, you know, if you're really reading the story, and so then, and then, honey, um, God, God put Noah and his family in the ark, and then... And then all the millions of people died. Sleep well. Okay. And it's a weird story to read at night. But anyway, but that's what happened. And so, but there was someone else in the story that we don't recognize. Uh, now, remember, at this point in time, people were still living very long lives. There's a guy whose name is Enoch. Enoch is found in Genesis chapter 5. He is a prophet and didn't die in the traditional sense. And you'll see this in chapter 5 of Genesis. It says, so all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And, and once again, you might say, well, yeah, that's, that's just poetic language to mean that he died. Well, I, I, maybe, I might agree with you, except in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, we get a clarification where the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. But before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. So if, if, if you can look at this as an illustration, that Enoch was like a type of the church being raptured, taken before the judgment came. And then the flood comes. They're like, well, what about Noah and his family? Noah and his family become a type of Israel who are not taken out of the judgment, but are preserved through the judgment. And once again, just... To cap it, Jesus says in uh, Luke 17, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. We see this pattern in Scripture that God removes his people before wrath is revealed. And, and here's why we have to understand that is because a lot of times we talk about, well, you know, don't we all experience tribulation? Didn't Jesus say in this world you will have tribulation? He's talking about tribulation, lowercase t, as in problems we all deal with. That is the stuff that the enemy of our souls throws at us. Great tribulation, capital T, is, what God, is when God sends tribulation to the earth. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 1, same book, Paul says, uh, he says to the believers there, he says, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us 
from the wrath to come. He says later in 1 Thessalonians 5, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And and once again, here's the cool thing, is that if you're a Christian, uh, you've got your ticket. And when the rapture comes, I mean, we're, we're out of here. And um, even if you aren't sure when it happens, uh, I had a friend, I had a friend, yeah, you clap for that, that's good, that's good. I'm telling you, I had a friend that said, uh, and once again, I, I used to teach it, uh, I used to teach at college, and so I would teach this stuff, and, but over the years, I've had friends who say, you know, will I get raptured if I'm wrong about when it happens? And I always tell them, like, no, nah, man, we just explain it to you on the way up, you know, that's all. Um, but the cool thing is that, listen, we don't see, uh, we don't experience God's wrath on earth during the tribulation because Jesus already took upon himself God's wrath at the cross. And when you accept him, when you invite him into your life, that work, that finished work is, um, stands in. He's standing in on our, on our behalf. And listen, um, and it could be, you know, and especially there's a whole bunch of people that aren't in this room. You guys are watching online and, um, and it could be that you've been, you know, attending for some time and uh, you're unsure about where you stand with God. Well, listen, this is the moment. This is the day to settle it. And that you can just call out to God and just say, Jesus, I'm sorry for all that I've done wrong, all of my sins, but I'm grateful that Jesus died for me. And I want to walk with you. And listen, that will make you ready for his return. And listen, that's all it takes. And you're going to be ready for the greatest moment in history, the return of Jesus. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you for this promise that your son is going to return. And that in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to see him. And everything that's wrong in this world is going to begin to be made right. And so Lord, help us to live with that reality in mind. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.